very good morning to you. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. The United States and Europe agree to impose tough new sanctions against Russia. China will reportedly allow five regions to set up asset managers to buy bad loans. Microsoft is investigated by China for antitrust. And two fairly large U.S. acquisitions make it another merger Monday in the United States. Real estate professionals spend $12 billion a year in advertising, and they spend only 4% of that on Zillow and Trulia right. combined. So that is Zillow buying Trulia, and that is the CEO, Spencer Askum of Zillow. So more on that. Markets were stable overnight, waiting on the Fed. What I, what I worry about is a tightening in the labor market that brings about unsustainable uh, increases in wages. That's Professor Jeremy Siegel from the Wharton Business School. He says that wages will be the key in this Friday's U.S. jobs report. And there's also uh, a big GDP report that's coming out this week. So we'll take a look at that later. Also, the HKMA here in Hong Kong buys another three quarters of a billion U.S. dollars to keep the Hong Kong dollar down. And China stocks enter a bull market. Our guests this morning include Kim Do from Bering Asset Management on markets. Ben Cavender from the China Market Research Group. We'll be on the line from Beijing to talk about food supply in China. We'll also be looking at the Hong Kong-Shanghai Connect and other issues with Tim Craighead from Bloomberg Intelligence. And later we'll be taking a look at jobs in the Asia-Pacific with Nick Marsh of Harvey Nash Executive Search. Here's how the Asian markets are moving at the moment. Australia is just a little bit lower, Seoul just a little bit higher. So just three points down in Australia. And the cost is up five points in Seoul. And uh, taking a look at dollar uh, the forex trading dollar yen is now 101.83 very little change the euro at 1.3438 us dollars and the renminbi 6.162 against the us dollar more from those data sheets uh, in a few moments but first the us and the european union will act on tough new sanctions against russia according to a white house official deputy national security advisor tony blinken said the new sanctions would be aimed at the russian finance at the defense and energy industries, as well as what he called Vladimir Putin's cronies. President Barack Obama consulted the leaders of France, Germany, Italy, and the UK in a video and telephone conference earlier this morning, our time. On Wall Street, stocks little changed. Back to Professor Siegel. He thinks some of the pressure on inflation has lifted. We have seen a significant softening of important commodity prices over the last four weeks, hmm. which I think has taken uh, the pressure off of uh, inflation, at least temporarily. So that is Professor Jeremy Siegel from the Wharton Business School. He's very bullish on U.S. markets, but he says that the jobs report and wages in particular will be key this week. What I, what I worry about is a tightening in the labor market that brings about unsustainable uh, increases in wages that is inflationary and will force the Fed to act sooner than we now believe. That's why we're looking ahead. I think the most important data this week is going to be Friday, not so much the payroll gain. I think we're expecting 220, 230, but I'm going to look at that unemployment rate. I'm going to look at the participation rate. We want that going up uh, and, and also look at what kind of wage gains we're seeing. Discount chain Family Dollar soared 25% after Dollar Tree agreed to buy it for $8.5 billion U.S. dollars. And Trulia jumped 15% as Zillow agreed to buy it for $3.5 billion. Zillow CEO Spencer Raskoff says there are a lot of ad dollars out there moving online. 
Real estate professionals spend $12 billion a year in advertising, and they spend only 4% of that on Zillow and Trulia right. combined. Uh, so we have a long way to go to, to achieve what we consider to be our ambition. He says real estate agents need to embrace technology or die. Most real estate advertising still occurs offline in newspapers and direct mail and outdoor advertising. Uh, the real estate advertising that's online tends to actually, a lot of it goes to a very long tail of local real estate sites, um, including tens of thousands of real estate sites in any given city, uh, which that long tail in the aggregate is actually, uh, aggregates a lot of consumer audience. So Zillow and Trulia are probably the two best known national brands, but it's still a very, very fragmented space, uh, especially at a local level. The S&P 500 gained less than 0.1% to 1978, but it was another gain. The Dow Jones Industrial Average up 22 points at 16,982. Mergers and acquisitions are booming amid low interest rates and corporate cash that is sitting on balance sheets. Bloomberg estimates that more than $1.1 trillion of takeovers have been announced this year. That exceeds all of 2013. So lots to talk about this morning. We'll turn our first focus uh, to the markets, and particularly here in Hong Kong and China. We welcome Kim Do, the head of uh, Asian multi-asset trading at Bering Asset Management. Kim, good morning. Good morning. Well, we have seen, as I mentioned there in the headlines as well, uh, China stocks here, eight shares, moving into a bull market. It seems all of a sudden that Chinese stocks are all the rage. Um, do you support that move? I think that uh, the move in the uh, Chinese market is um, is is well anticipated, especially since um, I think that the authorities in China have realized that the economy has been slowing down too substantially. And since about two months ago, I think that a number of measures have been implemented in order to try to ensure that GDP growth in China can return to the growth rate of about 7 to 7.5%. So I think that the increase, uh, the injection of liquidity plus the turnaround in some of the leading indicators plus the cheap valuation of the market really were the cornerstone for the rally which we have seen of the last few months. You didn't mention too much about easing the curbs on property. Uh, that kind of easing, a little softening in a tougher approach from the administrators, uh, is that uh, a distinct positive for China stocks? That definitely is uh, an additional um, positive measure, definitely, yes. It's sort of targeted easing, isn't it? It's not the big one that they did back in 2008-09, but it's um, in, in selected circumstances, uh, lowering the reserve ratio requirements. It's these co property curbs eased off. It's putting money into some infrastructure and low-cost housing. Uh, does it seem to be working in your view? I think that it is... Um I think it is, uh, it is preferable to actually doing a, a massive kind of easing because we have seen the excesses which were brought about uh, when they implemented um, the 2009 massive uh, fiscal stimuli. And so I think that uh, it, is, um, it is preferable uh, to, do, uh, to do selective um, uh, ex expansionary uh, plans or, or, or projects. Uh, I think that uh, there is still a lot of um, you know inventories in many industries, including property uh, and um, and shopping centers and so on in in China. So, I think that the targeted approach is, uh, from our viewpoint, uh, preferable to to a massive injection of liquidity everywhere in the economy. Yeah. 
As a counterpoint to a lot of the money rushing into these uh, China stocks, I ran three or four clips from uh, a hedge fund manager, Jim Chanos, yesterday, uh, just to give people a little balance. Uh, he's still very negative. There is a there is a big community out there that is still short, big time, uh, Hong Kong and China stocks, particularly uh, the China property sector. Um, do you disagree with these folks? Do you think that they're just wrong? <laughs> it has been uh, it has been uh, a well um, I think that uh, very well well publicized uh, kind of um, <clears throat> war between um, between those who look at uh, the Chinese market from this region as compared to those who um, are taking a much more negative view from London or from New York. I think that. Um, there is no doubt that the banking system in China still has a number of issues. There's no doubt about that. But to look for the Lehman's moment in <clears throat> in China, I think that is is going to be uh, a long wait. It's like waiting for Godot. And Godot, I mean, mm-hmm. this Godot will never appear um, over the next 12 months. I don't think so. Because the Chinese banking systems is still uh, controlled and owned by the government. And the government does have um, excess funds in order to repair the balance sheet of um, the, the banking system in China if it wants to. So I think that looking for the Lehman's moment in China is the wrong place to look. And uh, I would say that um, given that the, um, some of the, the bad debts is being restructured, and there's nothing wrong with restructuring bad debts. I think that there are lots of bad debts in China. That I, I think that is right. But they, they are restructuring it, and, they, and they're doing something about that. So, in fact, from our viewpoint, we were buyers of banks a few months ago, as I said, when, when we saw signals that the government is doing something about the economy. Yeah. I want to ask you about the banks in just a moment. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my headline stories this morning was – a Bloomberg piece that uh, China's banking regulator is allowing governments in five places, including Shanghai, to set up these asset management companies to buy bad loans. Uh, now, this is still a re- story that is reported uh, because Bloomberg's running it, uh, quoting three people with knowledge of the matter. But you say you see some progress on this front. And uh, explain to our audience, this is sort of a general listenership audience, uh, why this makes a difference, why setting up asset managers, uh, you know, sort of bad banks to buy these loans can be a positive. Well, I think that um, with the uh, bad loans uh, in, in the bank's balance sheet, obviously that, um, that is a burden on the bank's balance sheet because those bad loans do not uh, – um, there is no interest being paid on those loans. So the bank has to write them off. And one way to write them off is to actually try to find a market and sell them at the discounted price. And that is not the practice which is just being conducted by China. In fact, um, in Australia, in the US, in the UK, everyone is doing that. So I think that the bad bank is a very clever uh, organization of, of, um, of uh, an institution to buy these uh, bad debts from the banks and then uh, try to restructure them work, them, work them out somehow. And so I think that this is... a. Uh, this is a very um, sensible thing to do, and China has been doing that for years. In fact, um, back in um, back about ten years ago, they already embarked on one of the uh, pro- uh, process, and this is like the second time they're doing it again. But as I said, this is a, a global kind of um, phenomenon, which uh, I think that is very sensible. Okay, so let's make some money for listeners. Uh, what are the areas that you like the most right now? We've seen a pretty nice run in uh, China stocks, both the eight shares here and the Shanghai Composite, but we've seen it fail in the past. Do you stick with this move at the moment? 
I, I would. I would for the moment. Uh, and the re- reason for that is because when you look at the valuations of, um, of let's say, the banks uh, in China, it's still trading close to one times book. And it's offering you something like six to six and a half percent yield. And as, um, as we don't think that, you know, the Lehman's moment is happening in, in China anytime soon, we think that that offers a lot of, uh, of value. So we think that, um, uh, from from a you know upside potential kind of perspective, we think that it could rally the, the market could rally by something like another ten to fifteen percent from now until year end. Yeah. Okay, and just briefly uh, from the Fed this week, anything that um, upsets the mood? I don't think so. I think that Ms. Yellen is very happy with life at the moment uh, because uh, <laughs> the economy is uh, progressing well and. Uh, you know, there is no, no not real inflation. Pre- there is not a strong inflationary pressure building up as yet, and uh, I think that uh, she she must be very comfortable. I think that her number crunchers uh, are very comfortable with with uh, the way the economy is going. But I think her concern and and the market should be more concerned about the uh, U.S. interest rate and stock market um, direction next year, because I think that it, uh, Ms. Yellen and her board will will have to um, actually fasten the rate of uh, monetary tightening next year because uh, from our reading of the U.S. economy, they are too late. They are very late in this move. Mm. So we think that next year could be quite problematic for the U.S. Uh, financial markets. Mm, okay, so you're on the other side of uh, of um, Mr. or Professor Siegel, Jeremy Siegel there. He's saying that uh, commodity prices down, easing inflation, not to worry, however keep an eye on wages. Uh, anyway, Kim, got lots of uh, guests this morning, so I'll let you go. Thank you very much for joining us here. Thank you very much indeed. Kim Doe, it's been a while, but uh, head of Asian multi-asset bearing asset management joining us. We've got Ben Cavender coming up from the China Market Research Group, Tim Craighead from Bloomberg Industries and a senior analyst there, or rather Bloomberg Intelligence. So we'll be speaking with Tim in just a few minutes. And Nick Marsh comes a bit later from Harvey Nash Executive Search, looking at jobs in the Asia Pacific. These gentlemen with us uh, throughout this hour here. On, on the program. Well, it's the largest compensation package awarded to date, some 50 billion U.S. dollars. That's how much the International Arbitration Court in The Hague has ordered Russia to pay shareholders in the now defunct oil company Yukos for expropriating assets. And Moscow has condemned the ruling as politically motivated and vowed to challenge its legality. Details here from the BBC's Andrew Walker. Yukos was one of the giants of the energy industry that emerged after the end of the Soviet Union. But the company collapsed as its chief executive, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, was arrested, tried and imprisoned for theft and tax evasion, and its assets were acquired by a state-owned oil company. The ruling of the Permanent Court of Arbitration in The Hague calls the failure of Yukos a devious and calculated expropriation. It says the courts were used to incarcerate a man who gave signs of becoming a political competitor to President Putin. Tim Osborne a spokesman for the shareholders says they do expect to be paid. We didn't go into this for a pyrrhic victory to make a point. We went into it to get compensation for the loss we suffered and and we looked at the whole thing when we started and we, we still believe that we will ultimately collect on this award. Mr Khodorkovsky, who's no longer in prison, welcomed the ruling, but says he will not benefit financially. If there are any payments, the biggest gainer will be a former business partner who fled to Israel. 
Andrew Walker reporting. In other news, mainland regulators have reportedly met with managers at Microsoft's offices in four cities in China. Sina says that it is in preparation for a possible investigation into antitrust violations. State Administration for Industry and Commerce officials also called on Microsoft in Guangzhou and Chengdu yesterday, according to the news portal. It cited a Microsoft China employee that it did not identify. Well, let's uh, let's move on now to uh, our next guest, Benjamin Cavender, senior analyst at the China Market Research Group, and he joins us on the line from Beijing. Good morning, Ben. Good morning. Yes, um, I see that Husi has uh, launched its own probe and does find some quality issues there. This has become a very big story. It's not only uh, ongoing concerns about food safety in China from local suppliers, but also from foreign suppliers, as Husi is owned by the big OSI group out of uh, the Chicago area. Um, what do McDonald's and KFC and, and OSI group need to do now, do you think, to restore their reputation? I think all three of these companies are in kind of a difficult position now on this one, um, mainly because we've already had several key food safety scandals come up over the last year or two. And the problem there is that it makes it very difficult for consumers to really trust much of what companies are saying at this point. I I think looking at this current situation, um, what the companies have done well is they've been very quick in coming out with apologies. They've made statements to the media very quickly saying, you know what, we messed up. We're going to figure out what went wrong and, and find a way to fix it. And ordinarily, that's the right thing to do here. I think consumers tend to be forgiving if they feel like companies are being honest with them. Uh, in this case, though, it's just a little bit more challenging because uh, trust levels are so low right now in the market. I, I think on OSI's end, um, they, they just basically said that they're pulling all the products that uh, Husa uh, has been making uh, in the Shanghai market. So that's basically everything, including products beyond um, what have been seen to be um, past date in terms of what's going on shelves. Uh, and so that should help them in, in terms of convincing people that they're really taking drastic action right now. Um, I think Yum and McDonald's, what they're going to have to do is going to take longer. They're basically going to have to come out and say, look, we have a new system in place for measuring our suppliers. We're not just going to be checking the products as they come into our stores or our warehouses anymore. We're actually going to be spending more time at the supplier looking at the production line making sure that they're doing things the way they're supposed to be doing them. But they're going to have to tell that story to consumers, and I think that's going to take a fair amount of time and a lot of marketing. So far as you know, how has the foot traffic been at uh, KFC and Pizza Hut and McDonald's? Uh, Based on spot checks we've done with consumers, I think so far McDonald's has actually suffered the worst of the three, uh, mainly because most of their menu is focused on beef products, and, and that's as far as the consumer knows, that's sort of what the main issue is right now with the suppliers. Um, KFC has definitely suffered as well. I think KFC uh, especially is going to have some longer-term problems just because they had issues in the past with um, uh, some of their chicken uh, not being so healthy in terms of what was coming to the stores. Pizza Hut really hasn't been affected that much. Um, so right now it's, it's mainly McDonald's, but I, I think that uh, both McDonald's and KFC are going to have issues over the midterm at least. From consumer standpoint, do you see uh, their ire being directed more at the big international brands or more at uh, the local supplier who see? I think it's definitely targeted primarily at the brands rather than at the suppliers. I think people aren't necessarily paying attention to who the supplier is. They see the brand because that's their point of contact with the product. That's the point of contact for the marketing. 
Um, one of the reasons why they choose to go to McDonald's or to KFC instead of, say, Picos or CFC or um, another Asian or domestic brand is this perception that the quality on offer might be a little bit higher, that the standards are going to be higher. And so when uh, a brand like KFC or McDonald's is found to be wanting in that regard, it makes people all that more angry because they feel like they've been paying extra for that image or do, for do, that experience. Do you think this spreads to other brands, possibly outside food, even into luxury? I think that the consumer overall is becoming a lot more sophisticated in terms of how they look at products and look at product quality. And so it's not really going to just be food anymore. It's going to be basically any product category. They want to know that they're getting real value for money in the sense that they're getting really high-quality products, that the materials are going to be good, the overall experience is good, and that they're being treated fairly. Uh, And so I think we're going to see a lot more coming up with uh, other product categories and, and brands where consumers may be becoming dissatisfied and choosing not to buy. The government is starting to move aggressively in in many areas. Uh, The government, for instance, scrutinizing foreign car makers' pricing policies. What can you tell us about that involving Jaguar, Land Rover, and and other uh, car makers? Yeah, I think this ties into that, uh, the the previous point. Um, Jaguar Land Rover has sort of been under scrutiny by the uh, NDRC recently. Basically, there have been claims that they've essentially been price gouging a little bit, kind of pumping up the prices on some of their vehicles beyond what's really reasonable. Uh, and if you look at the the pricing, um, to some extent that's true. You know, if you look at, say, one of their main Range Rover models, I think in China it sells for something like 305000 U.S. dollars, whereas in the U.S. it's 87000 U.S. dollars. Um, now, a, a big chunk of that is because of import taxes, luxury taxes, um, but there's definitely been a margin kind of built on top of that um, that Jaguar's been able to get away with um, because they know that the consumer is willing to pay. Um, but I think the government's feeling is that this has kind of happened across the, the imported vehicle industry to some extent, and so they're kind of sending a message now that that's not really okay, that brands are going to have to really justify their pricing more. And so what we've seen with Jaguar Land Rover is they're actually – bringing down prices on a few of their lower volume models to kind of um, ameliorate the situation. I think we'll probably see this maybe possibly from BMW, from um, Mercedes-Benz, from Audi uh, in in the future as well, so that they can avoid uh, increased scrutiny from the government. Um, The issue, though, is if you look at what the consumer is willing to do, in most cases they're willing to pay, or if, if the price is too high, the dealers have to offer discounts. So I'm not sure that that's a real issue other than that it does annoy the consumer that they're being asked to pay extra money. Now, we just have a few minutes left. I just wonder if I could get you to comment on uh, mainland sending managers to talk to Microsoft. Uh, Is is that something that you've known about uh, in advance? And uh, what sort of antitrust are they talking about? Well, I think this goes back to the whole question earlier in the year about U.S. firms maybe helping U.S. government secure data or, you know, spy on Chinese companies or government or citizens here. Um, And so whether or not any of that's true, I think this is a big signal coming from the Chinese government that they're not going to let a pressure on U.S. firms, that they're kind of escalating this issue to some extent. I don't know whether or not Microsoft has done, you know, anything bad in this regard. In, in all probability, they haven't. But I think they recognize that this is part of business in China and this is part of the business climate they're going to face. Um, I know that the visits to Microsoft don't necessarily mean there are going to be any official charges. It could be as simple as there being some meetings 
Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, going forward with this. I mean, regardless, Microsoft has kind of struggled a little bit here with the government basically saying it's not okay to um, have government agencies buy computers with Windows 8 pre-installed. Um, so that's certainly hurting their sales. I think they've got to find a way to work with the government and kind of appease things so that they can actually sell more licensed products in the country going forward. And just a final quick question. I know you guys are trend followers. What's the hottest consumer trend at the moment? Uh, I think right now uh, we're going to be seeing a lot happening with sort of upper mass market goods. So brands like, say, Coach, for example, uh, should do pretty well here going forward. Consumers are kind of steering away from higher end or sort of mass luxury, I would say, because they're not seeing the value there anymore. So it's going to be brands like Coach, some of the fast fashion brands um, like Zara, H&M, I think are going to be doing very well here going forward uh, as consumers look at where they're going to spend their money. So that's one area, and I think the other area is really going to be overseas travel. So hotel chains, five-star hotel chains that are catering to Chinese consumers outside of China. So Club Med, um, a lot of, say, Starwood, companies like that. Okay, Ben, always interesting. Thank you. That's Ben Cavender, a senior analyst at the China Market Research Group, joining us on the line from Beijing. This is Money for Nothing. The time is 8.28. Now the markets are shaking out as we get down towards the bottom of the hour. The Nikkei is up 36 points at 15,565, so that's about a quarter of a percent. In Australia, the ASX 200 down a couple of points. In Seoul, the Kospi up 10. That's another pretty strong gain of half of a percent. You've seen a lot of bullishness here of late. You wonder how long it will run. The dollar-yen now 101.84, so very little change. The euro, 1.344. Didn't tell you about gold, $1,304.10, so not much movement there. Oil price is stable to lower. And uh, Brent crude now $107.45. And just a final note on the renminbi, 6.162 against the U.S. dollar. Just coming up to uh, news time here on Radio 3, the weather. The anti-clone aloft over southeastern China is bringing generally fine weather to the region. Some low pressure out there, but mainly fine today. Very nice day, very hot, the maximum 33. Just a couple of ticks uh, coming up before the news. I wanted to mention we have Tim Craighead uh, from Bloomberg Intelligence coming up in a few minutes. And we're going to look at that Shanghai Hong Kong Connect. And that is a sort of through train for stock purchases. Wondering whether or not uh, that will lift the markets even further. So we'll be looking at that. The news coming up. And then after Sam delivers the news summary, we'll take a closer look at what's happening in Gaza. And we'll also, um, a little bit later on, be looking at the business groups here urging people People not to take part in Occupy Central. So all that coming up in the second half hour. And Nick Marsh, the managing director of Harvey Nash Executive Search, will be with us for some key tips if you're looking for a job in the Asia Pacific. It's 8.30. The news now with Samantha Butler. International investigators will hold talks with Ukrainian forces and rebel fighters to try to again secure access to the crash site of the Malaysia Airlines plane that was shot down. Radio Australia's Stephen McDonnell reports from eastern Ukraine. 
For the second day in a row, inspectors have failed to reach the MH17 crash site because of heavy fighting here. Russian-speaking separatists have been desperately trying to halt the advance of Ukrainian troops. According to rebel leader Igor Strelkov, 30 of his men have been killed in the past 24 hours. The international team will try again to negotiate safe passage to the wreckage area. The previous assurances from both sides didn't stop Australian Federal Police and their colleagues being caught amidst a battle for control of the town of Shuktursk. World aviation officials will hold an emergency meeting in Canada today to discuss the risk of commercial airlines flying over war zones following the downing of MH17. Emirates has announced it will divert its flight from Iraqi airspace because of the insurgency by Islamic State militants on the ground. Aviation safety expert John Greer says existing regulations need an overhaul. He says governments need to play a greater role in advising airlines on safe flight corridors. Sometimes there's assets on the ground. The intelligence community would not want to give up all the information and all the the sources of their information. So it, it gets to be a, a quite a challenge for everybody involved to make sure that you have accurate information. The Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has said Israel must be prepared for a long campaign in Gaza. Mr Netanyahu said Israel would continue to act until its stated aim to destroy a network of tunnels had been achieved. Earlier, Palestinian officials said eight children and two adults were killed in an Israeli airstrike on a park in Gaza. The Israeli military blamed the deaths on a misfired rocket launched by militants. Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner said the missile had come from within Gaza. I can say categorically that the IDF has nothing to do with this rocket attack on the hospital or on the playground. We know for a fact that they were launched from within Gaza and struck within Gaza. There is, on our behalf, absolutely no question about where these rockets came from. Our radars picked up on the launch and they picked up on the impact. A judge in Los Angeles has ruled that the sale of the Los Angeles Clippers basketball team can go ahead despite the objections of its co-owner Donald Sterling. Mr Sterling's estranged wife negotiated the $2 billion US dollar sale to a former Microsoft chief executive after the National Basketball Association banned her husband from the sport for life. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning to you. 8.33. This is Money for Nothing in our expanded one-hour format for the summer back chat. We'll be back the 1st of September. Well, despite a renewed appeal by the United Nations for an immediate ceasefire, the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has spoken of a long military campaign in Gaza. Picking up on what you heard in our news there from Samantha Butler, in Washington, growing signs of a rift with Israel over accusations that the United States is siding with Hamas in efforts to secure a ceasefire in Gaza. The White House criticized what it called Israeli misinformation about American-led negotiations to try to end the fighting. More from the BBC's James Robbins. In the past couple of days, a torrent of abuse has been heaped on America's Secretary of State John Kerry by much of the Israeli media. Abuse inspired, Washington believes, by Israeli government briefings. America's top diplomat has been accused of trying to negotiate a ceasefire more favourable to Hamas than Israel. According to one Israeli newspaper, very senior officials in Jerusalem described the proposal that Kerry put on the table as a strategic terrorist attack. 
The State Department spokeswoman said it's simply not the way partners and allies treat each other. Relations between President Obama and Prime Minister Netanyahu seem to have fallen to a new low. At the weekend, the president told the Israeli leader of his serious and growing concern about the worsening humanitarian situation in Gaza. Mr Kerry hasn't responded to the Israeli criticism directly, although he did seem to reach out to Israel by stressing that any process to resolve the crisis in Gaza must lead to the disarmament of Hamas and all terrorist groups. The problem with that, from Israel's point of view, is the order of events. Israel insists it should disarm Hamas by force first, before stopping its attacks. BBC's James Robbins with that report. Here at home, five major business groups are urging people not to take part in the Occupy Central movement. They made the call a day after the Alliance for Peace and Democracy announced that it had collected 900,000 signatures of people who oppose the threatened civil disobedience campaign. The convener of that group, Robert Chow, has called for the government to take action. Stanley Lau, the chairman of one of the business groups, has been involved in the signature campaign. Our Mike Weeks asked Mr. Lau, what he thought that Robert Chow meant by this call for action? Well, I mean, the, if anybody, you know, um, uh, who is going to do something which is um, against the law, then I'm sure, you know, uh, uh, no matter the uh, uh, policemen of Hong Kong or the uh, Hong Kong government, uh, they will take action definitely so in order to maintain, you know, uh, the, uh, I mean, the peaceful of Hong, Hong Kong. Sure, I understand that. I mean, Occupy Central understands that if there was civil disobedience campaign, it would be breaking the law. But Mr Chow urged the government to take action against the campaign, which which in, in, in essence is, is intended as a threat. So does he mean action before they start taking any civil disobedience campaign? That's what I don't understand. Well, I think, you know, they just want to um, um, voice out that, you know, as what I just mentioned before, that, you know, still the uh, majority of people in Hong Kong, majority of citizens of Hong Kong, they don't agree with such kind of uh, uh, actions. Uh, so, I mean, we would like, you know, to avoid such kind of the um, uh, unexpected, you know, uh, um, uh, actions to, to be uh, made in central. Would you, uh, would you accept that the best way to avoid this kind of action, as Benny Tai and other organisers of Occupy Central have often stressed, is for them not to have to take it, for the government to ensure that we have a meaningful democracy where we have a genuine choice of candidates in the chief executive election and no pre-screening? Isn't well, that I mean, the best way to stop it? Well, I, I, I don't think, you know, it's a kind of uh, pre-screening. You know, when we look at, you know, the basic laws, uh, definitely, you know, then we, we must understand that no matter, you know, what kind of, uh, uh, I mean, the nominations we are going to suggest to the Hong Kong government or the central government, then there must be under or within the, you know, the criteria of basic law. I don't think there is any criteria in the basic law on the actual nominating committee, is it? It's supposed to be, it's supposed to be based on the former selection committee for the chief executive, but there's no actual requirement. So surely this is something we need to work towards and not start talking about what's in the basic law when there doesn't seem to be very much there. We must understand that, you know, uh, Hong Kong is not uh, an independent you know, I mean, the, uh, we cannot uh, copy exactly what, you know, the other countries or the, uh, no matter the Western, you know, countries, you know, are doing. You know, so, uh, so, Mr. Lau, what, effectively you're saying we have to do what uh, Beijing wants us to do. Is that what you're saying? 
mean, the, we, uh, what I'm saying is that, you know, we must, as I mentioned before, that, you know, no matter what, no matter how, still, you know, uh, you know, the nomination committee, you know, uh, must, you know, follow exactly, you know, what the, you know, the criteria or the requirements of the basic law. Yes, you've been listening there to an interview with Stanley Lau, the chairman of one of the business groups uh, that came out yesterday against Occupy Central, speaking with RTHK's Mike Weeks. And the time is now 21 minutes before 9 o'clock. If nothing, some of our top business stories this morning, uh, the United States and Europe agreeing to impose tough new sanctions. Those sanctions haven't been announced, but they took part in a five-way teleconference call on video to uh, agree that they will toughen up the sanctions on Russia. Also, China reportedly to allow five regions to set up uh, bad banks, in other words, asset managers to buy up bad loans from the banks. Microsoft being investigated by China and a couple of very big mergers in the United States. Uh, among the stories that we're following this morning as we return now to our coverage on business and finance. Also, this other interesting tidbit out overnight, the HKMA buys 715 million U.S. dollars um, to protect the Hong Kong dollar peg. So that means that they have been injecting uh, U.S. dollars in to weaken the Hong Kong dollar so that it does not strengthen past uh, the 775 uh, end of the range between 775 and 785. You wonder where all this money is coming from. One local um, commentator in the newspaper today says it's really no big deal. It's just really round-trip money from China. It comes into Hong Kong, goes back into China, dressed up, and that that gives several advantages to the people who are doing so. Others say, well, it's a lot of money coming in to take, uh, to take care of uh, the huge dividend payout that we will see in this quarter and various other reasons as well. Let's say good morning now to our next guest who may offer some light on this, Tim Craighead, the Director of Research at Bloomberg Intelligence. Tim, good morning. Good morning to you. Another thing we wanted to talk to you about was this Hong Kong-Shanghai Connect, uh, which is is coming up. Um, one of the deputy officials at the HKMA said that that wasn't the reason that money was flowing in here. Do you have a view on that? Not a precise view, but it does make sense that along with what's going on from a market dynamic, that this is part of an anticipatory effect on, on the markets. Um, I agree with your prior guest uh, with regard to an improving economy. Um, you know, markets anticipate that's 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 what stocks do. And while current growth isn't super, you know, you look at the first quarter and into the second quarter, you've got things like the China PMI and other indicators that are starting to brighten. And clearly, the stimulus that you had talked about uh, in the earlier segment, which we really think of, we've talked about it as a, a mosaic of change. There's lots of little pieces that pull together uh, that create an awful lot of action, whether it's infrastructure spending, whether it from an urbanization perspective, whether it's SOE reform, a lot of other things that pull together that I think are intriguing global investors. It's and great. Hong Kong is a way to get it's, in here. It's really great to have you on the program, Tim, because you're sort of like a spy on business intelligence. And uh, and so, you know, a lot of people who see these higher PMI numbers of 52, you know, with the, with the flash PMI um, last week and improving numbers that we just saw industrial profits uh, up 17.8%. Uh, much better than the 11% average this year as a spy of business intelligence. Can we believe those numbers? 
China's economic statistics, market statistics, uh, etc. I think uh, always have a uh, there, there's a bit of a skeptical view on the the, the, the numbers. I mean, if you look at within a global context, that said, <clears throat> I guess we try to triangulate on a couple of things. One is on a bottom up industry by industry basis, we're looking at industry data points, company data points, um, trying to piece together sort of a finger on the pulse to um, get a cross check. And we are seeing a variety of things, whether it's on the consumer or production front, that are starting to percolate. So, And in particular, that HSBC market uh, advanced mm. PMI, that's not put out by the government. That's a, that's a private uh, survey. It is, and it, it, measures, it measures things very differently than, than the, the official PMI. Um, you know, it has a bit of a smaller, uh, smaller cap, smaller company bias. Um, and, you know, that's been, you know, uh, in, a, in a negative territory for quite a while relative to uh, the official. Both of them, though, importantly, right now are starting to perk up, uh, which certainly is a positive indicator for the second half. So one of the aforementioned topics that we said we'd focus on with you was the Hong Kong-Shanghai Connect. Mm-hmm. That is coming. Uh, the quotas are kind of small in the larger picture, but nonetheless, people are still quite excited about it. It seems. Yeah, in, indeed, I would agree. Um, in, you know, the, speaking of the quotas, you're talking about, uh, as, as they call it, northbound and southbound, a 50 billion U.S. dollar northbound opportunity. That's Hong Kong and global investors um, buying into China. There's a little over a 40 billion dollar southbound opportunity for China to invest in Hong Kong stocks. And so, you know, you think, gee, those sound like big numbers, but that's relative to, um, uh, you know, significantly larger market caps. You know, you're talking, you know, close to $4 billion of, a, of an opportunity set for China to invest here, $4 trillion, um, and, and about $3 trillion on the other side. So those numbers, you're right, they're not huge on the grand scheme of things, but in the end, markets are priced by the marginal investor, not the, you know, so, so, you know, it is an important margin that can come in and have an impact. Is it likely it'll be expanded? What are your sources saying? Um, over time, um, it would make a lot of sense for this to expand, given what China is trying to do in terms of opening up and reforming. And, you know, that's everything from uh, the, the currency markets to the Shanghai Free Trade Zone. This is another incarnation of financial liberalization. Can they not do it until they fully liberalize? the renminbi otherwise they'd have capital flight yeah i mean there's all sorts of different constraints and policies that they're trying to manage and and create some compromises but certainly this is a good first stop just curious whether or not um, some of the money that had been going into property is that finding its way into stocks now is that one of the reasons we've seen a little bit of a of a boom here you know it, it's an interesting concept to think about. I, I don't have a great answer for you, but you know we had started to see um, property markets, if you look on a year-on-year price change, um, they started to peak out in terms of um, the, the increases that we had seen earlier this year. And, and, and you know, there are certain markets that back several months ago were still running up you know, 15, 18, 20 percent year-on-year. Um, if you look now, um, just about all markets are showing a rollover in terms of year-on-year gains, still significant. We're still talking in most markets, um, you know, 8, 10, 12% year-on-year gains. 
but it's the second derivative, if you will, that's turned negative, which is what's sparking some concern, which policymakers are now um, uh, taking action on. And at the same time, going back to that economic opportunity that seems to be improving, I think that's really the core of what's going on here. I mean, it may be a little bit of a change in flow from property to stocks, but I think more of it is just pure anticipation of a better economy in the second half. A better economy can definitely fix a lot of ills. Um, and one of the ills that it might fix is um, IPOs. It seems like we've got quite a lot of money that would have flowed in to take advantage of some of these uh, initial public offerings that are coming. How do they look to you? Do they look solid? Well, in, in the first half of the year, um, if you look at equity financing in total for China, there was $50 billion in equity financing. That's up 40% year on year. That was a big number. Um, TMT and industrials were, were ahead of the, the pack uh, in, terms of, in terms of industries. If you take that specifically to initial public offerings, um, uh, there were 90 deals, 14 billion U.S. dollars in total. Um, those stocks performed well, up about 40% on average through mid-year. Um, you guys did a nice story on that. Uh, it got a lot of attention. Well, it, it, pretty interesting in, Interesting to look at the dynamics. The, the thing, though, that, that is intriguing in terms of where is the money coming from, eight of the top 10 IPOs were actually listed here in Hong Kong and the U.S. They're not China stocks, per se, from the standpoint of what's trading there in Shanghai. I mean, there were a lot of those. They were smaller mid-cap, but the the big money um, is is attracting in you know global deals. You know Alibaba being the the biggest one upcoming, and there are plenty of pending deals um, uh, that uh, you know we're looking forward to in the in the second half. So I get to ask you a lot of questions, and I've done so. Is there anything you really want to talk about? Is there what are you working on most right now? What are you most interested in at the moment? Well. Um, I guess there are a couple of things that come to mind. One, just going back, not not to re-up on the uh, the Hong Kong-Shanghai exchange, but I do think that investors, whether you're here in Hong Kong or you're in China, will have a really interesting opportunity to take a look at various possible arbitrage opportunities. You know, again, think about what is it that China would want to buy here that they can't, and that's consumer uh, companies, luxury companies, gaming companies, um, some of the big non-China financials makes sense. Um, the flip side is also quite interesting. What can Hong Kong and global investors now get hold of in China and start doing their homework? And that's a, a bevy of small to mid-cap industrials. You know, there's 560 stocks um, on the Shanghai Exchange that are going to be open to Hong Kong global investors, and 120 of those are industrials. Um, there's also some really interesting technology and healthcare companies to give some consideration to. So, you know, so we're, we're doing a good bit of digging there. Would you short some of the eight shares that seem to have a surplus pricing vis-a-vis -vis the A shares in Shanghai? Well, you know, it's it's an interesting thing to take a look at on that front because you have to be really careful. Um, the equal weighted average A share premium. So if you take all of the AH dual listed stocks right now, um, the premium is 20% in favor of the A shares, the Shanghai shares. Um, if you actually market cap weight that, um, which really skews you towards banks and energy, uh, you're talking about uh, almost a 10% discount. So you really have to dig into the industries and the individual companies is the basic point. Okay. And if you, you, know, you, you look at the banks right now here, they're trading cheap in Hong Kong. 
Yeah, we're getting a little technical. Yeah, uh, sorry. But, but, you know, you're the head of intelligence. I mean, well, you're the director of research at Bloomberg Intelligence. What a job. I mean, that's a that's a great title to have. I mean, <laughs> you, you got a better – Bloomberg's probably got a better rep than the U.S. government. You're probably a cooler-sounding guy than the CIA chief. Well, we, we just want to make sure that it's not confused with uh, the, the spy intelligence. Yeah. We're just intelligence <laughs> in terms of hopefully yeah. a little insight. Just good research, yeah. All right, Tim, thanks very much. Uh, Tim Craig her Craighead, the director of research at Bloomberg Intelligence. Kind of specializing crazy comments uh, on this program uh, from me. I'm Brian Curtis, and this is Money for Nothing. The time is 10 minutes before 9 o'clock, and we've got this sort of tech in two. And I know what she's saying. She said, don't sell crazy here. We're all stocked up, Brian. Um, but... Um, that's a, for a discussion for another day. Angelina, Angelina Draper joins what an us intro. for a look at tech. Fantastic. Microsoft managers in four Chinese cities met with local regulators in the latest antitrust investigation to hit a U.S. company in China. The probe is believed to focus on whether Microsoft holds a monopoly in China's operating system. Okay. In May, central government offices were banned from installing Microsoft's latest operating system, Windows 8. In another Chinese antitrust probe, U.S. chipmaker Qualcomm is facing penalties exceeding $1 billion after being accused of overcharging and abusing its market position. Wearable technology is making strides with a smart shoe from Indian company Dusir Technologies. The shoe has a Bluetooth-enabled insert that links to, my- to Google Maps and buzzes to inform you which way to turn on a chosen route. It is not the first smart shoe, but it is the first to take on navigation. The shoe is already spurring interest in various applications, though the developers say the original idea was to help the visually impaired. About 90% of the visually impaired live in developing countries, and 20% are said to be in India alone. British consumers can now order one of the cheapest smartphones on the planet at just £26, about 340 Hong Kong dollars. Indian firm Carbon is hoping to rival Apple and Samsung in the international arena with the UK rollout of its Android phone. The A50S model has all the features you'd expect from a smartphone, although at limited speed and memory capabilities. It cannot connect to 3 or 4G, so it best performs on Wi-Fi and has two megapixel camera on the rear. On the plus side, however, the phone can easily support most frequently used apps and takes two SIM cards. Also, you can buy 21 of these phones for the price of one Apple iPhone 5S. Angelina, thanks very much. Angelina Draper with our Tech in Two. A couple of minutes uh, looking at technology stories uh, in uh, right across the globe. Well, the time is now about eight minutes before nine o'clock, and we'd like to say good morning to Nick Marsh, Managing Director of Harvey Nash Executive Search in the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, Nick, good morning. Morning, Brian. So lots of churn, I think. Um, a recent survey that you've done said that um, uh, one in ten chief uh, investment officers or, or – um, leading uh, C-suite guys in Hong Kong, planning to leave their job, guys and gals, I should say. Um, So that indicates that there's a little bit of churn, not because they're getting dumped, but because there's lots of opportunity, I take it. Yeah, there is. Um, There is a huge uh, investment curve within the technology space and digital commerce uh, across the world and Asia and especially into Hong Kong, uh, which I think historically has been slightly behind the curve on certainly digital investment. So is that uh, the way that somebody should position themselves then uh, to, to bring up to the fore um, whatever background, whatever exposure they've got to digital? Yeah, I think if um, you know, you're know you in a marketing field or an IT field or a business-focused 
role. Certainly where companies are massively investing right now is in digital commerce. It's a, it's a game changer. What are the basic skill sets? Uh, how should people position themselves? And what are companies looking for in people? So I guess you go back to, you know, why, why is digital commerce uh, so transformative? Uh, and I think it's the fact that it has a totally unique way of addressing uh, both the consumer and, and their business marketplace uh, and totally deconstructing uh, the way that businesses can go about uh, dealing with that. So, so the technology itself uh, is unique and, and uh, disruptive. So individuals who have that te technology skill set or marketing skill set and marketing know-how uh, are premium positioned at the moment uh, because there are not enough people with that skill in Hong Kong or in Asia and companies are having to import that skill from Europe, the States um, uh, and Australia, for example. You, you almost get the feeling now that um, job postings uh – Answering a job posting is is sort of perilous uh, um, adventure in that you almost feel that companies have set up these algorithms to look for keywords or something because almost every job search now can be global in nature. They may get thousands of apps in. So how do they pair through those? Uh, how do companies pass through them? Yes, exactly. Yeah, I and see. How, and, and on the back end of that question would be how should people try to position themselves if not answering job postings? Uh, so, so, look, I mean, I, I think it's a very good question because some of these job boards are highly prolific in the number of roles that they take and you get uh, job applications from literally around the world, from Mexico through India to, uh, to China. Um, and, and sometimes those applications are not exactly as robust as you might have expected. Um, so I think it uh, puts quite a, quite a lot of onus on companies to do their own digging into the... Uh, skill sets and, and capability of the candidates who are applying. I mean, Harvey Nash is a search firm, so we don't typically go through that route. Uh, we actually go direct to the candidates who we have uh, deep, deep knowledge of. How do you find people? Uh, we have a great research team uh, globally in Hong Kong, across Asia. Uh, those people are really super smart uh, graduates, um, uh, trained through our own uh, our own business, all interconnected on a on a single platform. So they are utilising a, uh, a really deep knowledge base, uh, and then and then those researchers identify and profile the the great candidates uh, and approach them directly. So we've just come through a week or two of pretty strong earnings uh, from technology companies. And you've said that, you know, this is one of the things that people need to look for, digital commerce. Uh, it's yeah. definitely, we saw this big uh, merger in the States between Zillow and Trulia. Lots of people all over the world now finding homes in America through that. Um, so uh, what are the latest trends, do you think, in digital that people should try to align themselves with? <laughs> the, the actual specific skill sets, I think, are, are changing on a... Uh, a monthly basis, you know, what was hot six months ago is is perhaps less hot now. Uh, but I think th the really great skill is to be ahead of the curve. Um, there are so much, so many new technologies being developed and invented out of uh, California and and actually in in Europe and and even in China now. Um, that you know, individuals need to do their own research and work out what space they want to be, but. Being, a, being the expert and, and being a, a dominant skill in one particular area will actually put you ahead of the curve. But being an expert in digital commerce, period, will put you into a space where companies desperately want to hire. And all of the um, big international companies 
are investing so substantially into digital commerce, they cannot get the skills uh, required in the local market. It almost sounds like the future is so bright for you that a lot of people should be looking to join executive search firms. Well, I, I think um, we, we've been very fortunate. You know, we've doubled in the last 12 months and we're based out of Hong Kong, which is always a nice thing. Um, but, you know, the, the whole of uh, Asia is growing. Um, uh, the Chinese market is, as Tim was saying earlier, um, uh, showing very positive signs going ahead. Um, Slump of uh, luxury not hurting you? This, the, the, it, it doesn't hurt us per se, but I think the uh, the luxury market has uh, had a big impact. But there are other areas that are that are arising at the same time. You know, the the professional business services market, the general retail uh, and consumer marketplace, whether it's H and M or. Uh, or, or Gap or Ikea and companies of that nature are all growing and, and substantially investing in, into the Asia market and, and in Hong Kong and China. Okay, Nick, very interesting stuff. Thank you very much for joining us here on Money for Nothing. Thanks, Mike. Nick Marsh, Managing Director of Harvey Nash Executive Search. Well, that's our program for today. We'll just kind of take you out with uh, a look at markets. Um, the Nikkei is up 43 points. In Australia and Seoul, we see mixed uh, pictures. Seoul steadily higher, half a percent or so. Australia flat for the day. Well, um, in terms of oil prices and gold, oil is now trading at $107.52 a barrel and gold $1,304.40. All right, well, we'll look at the weather for you as we move into the news at the top of the hour. And then morning brew coming up. Mainly fine today. Some showers expected. Hot conditions. The maximum temperature 33 with light winds. The outlook mainly fine. Very hot for the next few days. Money for Nothing on Radio 3. Again, the news is next. And then morning brew. Thanks for joining us.